Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Welcome back to another episode of TV Show and Tell, the podcast about the often weird and sometimes wonderful world of television. I'm David Bodicombe. I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scroggie, known internationally as the Format Doctor. And in today's show, we have another real star of the industry, as our special guest is the highly experienced game and reality show producer, Bob Bowden. He joins us to talk about some of the many, many big shows he's looked after in his extensive career. And we'll also be talking about what makes up the nuts and bolts of the game show format, and what a 16th century monk has got to do with the television industry. But first, let's set sail to the distant lands of television news. Have you spotted anything on the horizon, Justin? Well, I've spotted that Ninja Warrior is coming back to the UK after quite a long break. Um, It'll be returning with a new season on ITV and ITV Hub, of course. This time, apparently, there's going to be a couple of new twists. So first of all, there's going to be two champions this time. So they're looking for the UK's top female and male competitors. So they'll be crowned Ninja Warrior UK male and female champions. And secondly, the contestants don't only face each other... But they're also going to have to take on the ninjas, who will be a team of professional ninja warrior athletes in head-to-head races. So borrowing a little bit from gladiators, Mm. uh, apparently this is something that they have used once or twice in other versions. I think I heard uh, the junior versions had something similar, apparently. Right. So it's not a completely new idea, but I do like the idea of mixing it up a little bit. Yeah, I think it's time. I mean, the, the UK version is a for me, is a bit of a flat version, the arena version, compared to the US, which is usually played out on the streets and things, has a lot more buzz to it. So I think shaking it up a bit is a good idea. Amazon have announced a format called 007's Road to a Million, which is a game show where pairs of contestants travel around the world and have to complete challenges in the James Bond style, whilst also taking part in some sort of intelligence test. Wow. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool branding. Yeah, so it's um, unusual that uh, a big brand like James Bond will be allowed to be associated with something like this. But it's going to be an eight-episode-long series and no indication about when it's coming out just yet. So I would imagine that's got something to do with the fact that Amazon have bought MGM. Yes, so that's that's just gone through, hasn't it, this, this yeah. link? And they, that, that was obviously the big prize in that, that deal. Mm. Exactly, because MGM own Bond franchise. Ah, but I, I think in the original story, when it was broken on Variety, they said that this was a coincidence because the format's been in the works for about four years. <laughs> well, it may be it may be a coincidence, but this was, I'm sure this is what's got it across the line. It's, it's a happy synergy. Let's put it like that. <laughs> All right, let's settle at that. <laughs> Staying in America, uh, terrifying news about a new baking format that's in production. It's hosted and produced by Jason Biggs, who some listeners will recall had a close encounter with a warm apple pie in the movie American Pie. Gosh, this sounds like it's like the ultimate late night baking format then. 
Well, fortunately not. So it's actually called Big Zass Bake Off, can you believe? Um, and as I understand it, the baking wannabes will all be living together in a compound 24 hours a day. And they have to fill entire rooms with sweet treats that the judges will then visit. So there you go. There seems to be an awful lot of dating formats that are trying to come off the back of, I guess, COVID conditions. The CBS in the US and 10 Network in Australia have come up with The Love Boat, This Time It's Real, mm. which is um, off the back of the 1970s. But also BBC Three have commissioned something similar called Love in the Flesh, where people who have matched online finally get to go on a date in real life. Really are getting back to basics. On <laughs> yeah, I know there are there are so many dating formats around at the moment, and they all seem to be struggling with trying to find some balance between real life and fantasy life and things. It's it's or, or at least online life. It's a, it's a, it's very strange. It just feels like overkill, to be honest with you. But I guess with um, the Love Boat one, there's an awful lot of cruise ships around that haven't been used for two or three years and are desperate uh, to <laughs> to come up some business and have some regular clients and a, and a nice fit location fee. So I would imagine that's what's going on. I've heard, yes, that there was actually a, I think it was a Royal Caribbean ship. Yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah. Uh, my last bit of news is about Farmer Wants a Wife. Uh, listeners may remember this was a, a, originally a British series actually originally a documentary series about the problems that farmers had in going on dates given the the life of uh, of a farmer in fact it's been a huge success around the world it's one of those quiet formats that travel that people don't talk about in the same way they talk about x factor or strictly come dancing whatever it's actually been made in 32 countries so far hmm. And it's still going well. Um, it's just been recommissioned or commissioned for the first time in English-speaking Canada on, on CTV. I think mm. it's called Farm, Farming for Love, I think it's called. I think it really proves the fact that sometimes urban-based television ignores or neglects a whole area and a whole genre of TV and a whole audience that's sitting there waiting for something to fill that genre. Um, farming agricultural happens all over the world farmers live all over the world and they get lonely all over the world and that's one of the reasons it's been such a hit well we're going to be looking at what is the secret sauce that makes a format go around the world like that in one of our hot topics so we shall return to that later in the show Our special guest today is the born and bred game show fan who's gone on to work on pretty much every US game show brand going, including the $25,000 Pyramid, Press Your Luck, Card Sharks, To Tell the Truth, Match Game, The Chase, Russian Roulette, as well as several reality shows. Let's hear from him now. Our guest uh, joining us today from California is TV game show legend Bob Bowden. Hi, Bob. Hello there. In fact, Bob is so game show, his doorbell has multiple choice options and unwanted <laughs> callers disappear through a trapdoor. <laughs> so, Bob, your bio is too long to list here, but you've been involved in so many shows uh, in the United States. And we're going to talk about a few of them. Um, but before that, let me just ask... What is it about 
game shows that that's so uh, grabbed you and made it such a big part of your life? Well, uh, it all started when I was six years old. Um, I grew up in New York and uh, my mom and I would go into the city from time to time and and I would pick up tickets for various uh, TV shows, including a lot of game shows. And I remember noticing on the bottom of the ticket, it said uh, minimum age for admittance was six. And so I was counting the days to my sixth birthday when I could go see a game show. And uh, so when I turned six, I said to my mom, I want to see Password, which was the next game show that was taping after I was six. Uh, and so we went to that. It was at the Ed Sullivan Theater. And uh, that's when the light went on for me. Uh, it, it was exciting. I, I only had a black and white TV at home. And here I was in this studio seeing a show in color for the first time. And because uh, we were in the balcony and because you couldn't see over the edge of the balcony, you couldn't see the full stage, they had this enormous monitor, kind of like a jumbotron, um, <laughs> just for the balcony to see the show. And so I, here I am staring at a color TV the size of a football field. And I just fell in love that day with, with game shows. And I, I remember saying to my mom, this is what I want to do when I grow up. Uh, and I never looked back. Um, they are exciting. Um, they embody the American dream, um, probably the UK dream too, but uh, certainly the American dream of wish fulfillment. And um, uh, come on down, uh, you know, a new car. Uh, it, it's it's uh, it's anything and everything that people could want in life: fame, fortune, uh, excitement, bells, buzzers, lights. It's it's been everything to me, and it's it's all I've ever really wanted to do. So I've been lucky to to be in that world for over four decades now. Okay, so you've been involved uh, in producing or supervising. Uh, many classic game shows like Match Game and $25,000 Pyramid. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Press Your Luck. Now, that was a show for, for CBS. Um, I was working at CBS in the, um, the uh, mid-'80s, uh, and uh, I had uh, been able to secure a position in the daytime programming department. And um, the first show that they gave me uh, to supervise as the network uh, representative was Press Your Luck. Uh, now, Press Your Luck had been on the air for about a year and a half at that point. And to be honest, it was, it was a trial by fire. It was pretty rough for me because I was a kid, uh, a baby executive, and the producer and director of the show, Bill Carruthers, was a, a tough guy. Um, he wanted things his way. Uh, he didn't want anyone telling him what to do or how to do it. And so here I am, um, you know, still in executive diapers coming into the control room, trying to tell him what I wanted on behalf of the network. And he very rarely paid any attention to me. What's, what sort of issues would, would you be discussing or, or trying to change? Uh, it would be questions, uh, the, you know, the material that led to earning the spins that would be on the board. 
It would be the composition of the board, the prizes that they wanted to use. Uh, it would be the host dialogue, uh, any kind of special promotions or, or gimmicks that, that they wanted to do. Um, I got involved in uh, what the whammies were, um, approving whammies, suggesting whammies, um, and, the, and the general production of the show. You know, are they, are they, uh, it, it was a difficult show to produce because the, the format could go long or short depending on how many spins were earned and how many spins were used. And we had a self-contained half-hour show. So sometimes the show would run pretty long if, if there was a lot of successful spinning going on, and sometimes it would be really short. So we would have to work with each other to figure out either how to fill the time or how to contract the time. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of that had to be done in post. But at the time, most game shows had no post-production at all or very minimal post. So this show, because the timing was so, so much of an accordion, uh, we had a lot of post because we had to fit it into what at the time was, I think, 24 minutes. Now it's about 19. Um, but uh, it, it was a challenge. And along the way, we would talk about what could be edited out uh, or where we would need to stretch. And those were, you know, on, on the fly kind of notes. And, and on most of the shows I worked on subsequent to that, including Pyramid and Price is Right and Card Sharks and a whole host of other shows, uh, the producers... The producers and I would have a, a camaraderie and a, and a kinship, but that show was a lot harder. Um, stretch and squeeze was clearly something that you took away in a, as a lesson from that show. Um, were there other things that you took away that you then applied in other shows in the future? Yeah, I learned quite a bit from Press Your Luck. Uh, first of all, as much as I uh, was... Uh, was annoyed that uh, Bill wouldn't pay any attention to me. Watching him work as a director was spectacular. Uh, he had a true vision for the show as the producer and the director, which was not a common thing back then. Um, he called shots in a very rapid and, and, and darn near perfect um, mode. Um, and uh the booth was just as exciting as the floor because of his style. So I learned to appreciate directors, game show directors, uh, watching Bill. Um, I got to appreciate uh, hosting talent by watching Peter Tamarkin, the late Peter Tamarkin, um, who was really, really good at not only just, you know, hosting in the, in the classic sense of being the traffic cop and keeping the action moving, but he did all the math in his head. He knew instinctively how to build drama, how to build suspense. And all of those elements really came into play, not so much in, in the shows of the 80s, but as game shows uh, evolved into the newer era that followed Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, drama suddenly became a much more important facet of those shows. And... Uh, Peter was outstanding at building the drama and, and giving the audience the roadmap of the consequences, which, you know, only a great host can do. But that era in the, sort of the mid to late 80s, there's so many 
uh, rate formats were either reborn or created then, and even now they're still filling the airwaves. What what is it about the the, the formats of that era? Do you think why they were just they were successful then and continue to be successful? Well, a, a few years ago, I I sent a note to Rob Mills, who's the head of alternative programming for Walt Disney Television, and he is the architect of, of all of the revivals on ABC. And at the time, he had six revivals on. And I sent him a note and I said, I said, by the way, I've worked on all six of your shows. I'm probably, <laughs> I'm probably the only person in this country who has worked on all six. And so uh, the, the revival era has been truly, truly exciting to me. Um, because I get to see all the shows that I got to work on uh, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, um, coming back and, and done authentically and organically well um, with great new hosts. And um, it's just been a, a, a really exciting time uh, to, see, to see all these shows back on primetime. So moving forwards to the turn of the century, uh, we come to a game show that you originated, that you created called Greed. Um, in the US, this played on Fox. I think in the UK, it was on Channel 5 with the lovely Jerry Springer. Yes. So tell us about the premise of that show um, and how it evolved. Well, Greed was a, a fairy tale for me. Um, it all started with Millionaire's premiere uh, in August of 99. And on the third day of Millionaire, when the ratings were starting to become um, uh, monumental, um, Dick Clark's son, Rack, called me and he said, so dad is watching the numbers on this show and he believes that it's going to be a monster hit. And he wants to create a show that can compete with it that we could sell to another network. Are you up for that? I'm like, well, what time do you want me to show up? Um, so that was Wednesday. They asked me to come in on Friday. So I had two days to create a format. Uh, I did. I came in on Friday with a concept called All for One. It was a team game that had a $5 million jackpot where there were questions where you would add a zero. So it was... A $50 question, a $500 question, a $5,000 question, a $50,000 question, a $500,000 question, and a $5 million question. And they thought, well, that's a little high, um, but that's the idea. Create a ladder. And we settled on a $2 million prize, and they wanted more questions in it because Millionaire had 15 questions, and they felt my ladder was a little bit too thin. And... The other big change that, that Dick Clark and his, his um, teammates loved, uh, the, the, the criticism they had was I had people who knew each other working together. So it would be office mates, neighbors, friends, um, couples. Um, and they said, you know, the competition will be more intense if it's strangers. So... That Friday, they gave me notes. I went home over the weekend, and I redid the format, and I made it strangers. I changed the money ladder, but the, the ba basics of the game were 
pretty similar. I had a um, an all or nothing kind of philosophy where a majority of the five people had to agree on an answer in order for it to go through, which was used many, many decades later on, on Divided. Um, so they, uh, they wanted it to be more of a, a game where there was a captain and there were people who were beholden to the decisions that one person made so you could focus on the drama of somebody making a decision for five teammates that was potentially worth life-changing money. So uh, Dick and his, his uh, compatriots loved the new format. Um, we pitched it to Fox. I'm sorry. We pitched it to NBC the next day, Tuesday. Uh, Rick Ludwin, God rest his soul, wonderful man. Uh, he was in charge of, of uh, specials, but, but that bled over into game shows in this era because there, wasn't, there weren't any executives who were dealing with game shows yet. It was brand new. And uh, Rick loved it, but he said, we own the format for 21. We're going to do that, so we're passing. The next day, Wednesday, we brought it to Fox, to Mike Darnell. Mike jumped up and down, as he was known to do, and he said, <laughs> Love this, love this, love this. This is going on the air. I'm going to get this through the system. Um, this is great. He wanted it to be meaner. He wanted more of a competitive streak. He wanted there to be uh, an element where people could steal each other's money. So we went back to the office and we said, okay, we need a stronger title than all for one. So we sat around the table and uh, we, we kept coming up with, with new names. And I said, well, what about like the greedy team, the greedy bunch, the, the, the greedy gang? And Dick said, stop, just call it greed. Many game shows are greed and let's just call it greed. So we all agreed on that. We um, did a, you know, a, a, a title search and it was available. And then we came up with an element where two contestants would randomly go against each other at several points in the game, and whoever answered a jump-in question first would steal the bank of their opponent. So we wound up calling that the Terminator. Um, and oddly enough, that was a clearable title for a game show, even though there were movies called The Terminator, but it was okay to use it for a game show. So we incorporated that back into the format, brought it back to Darnell. He jumped up and down higher than the first time. Um, I love it. I love it. I love it. And uh, he put it through the system. So the original pitch for the show was on August 28th. And on November 4th, the show went on the air. Wow. They ordered six half hours. At the time, Millionaire was still a half hour in primetime. So we had three hours of inventory. Mike loved the show so much. He said, we're going to premiere with a two-hour special. We said, well, that's fantastic, except that's two-thirds of our inventory. We don't have any shows left. <laughs> he says, okay, well, then let's do six more. So we ordered another six before we even got on the air. Uh, so we went on that first night in November. His goal was to beat Millionaire to come back on the air after its initial run in August. So they were scheduled to come back on November 6th. And in true Mike Darnell fashion, we got on the air two days earlier. 
So we now had a $2 million jackpot, which was double. And we had many of the same type of lighting effects and dramatic music and played out drama. Um, and uh, the teamwork added an element that Millionaire didn't have. And Fox promoted the heck out of it. I mean, they just, it, there were promos on during every primetime show. And they really pushed it hard. And we did okay the first night. Uh, we did actually quite well for Fox. Um, and so uh, we got a regular time slot. Millionaire came, Millionaire came back and was even stronger than ever. And we never approached the ratings of Millionaire. But we were a strong performer for Fox. We settled into a Friday night time period. Oddly enough, we were partnered with Wildest Police Chase Videos. Um, but for some reason, the two shows were compatible. And we were on Friday at 9. Uh, we lasted 44 episodes. And unfortunately, Mike's boss changed hands. And the new boss didn't like game shows and pulled it off the air um, uh, in, in July of 2000. Uh, but we had a very nice run. We gave away a lot of money, well over $5 million, um, made a lot of people rich. And uh, the show sold in 19 countries around the world, uh, including the UK. And I, I went there to uh, consult on the Jerry Springer version. And, you know, it didn't honestly work all that well in other countries uh, the, the foreign versions were sold by Fremantle, and uh, the, the champion of that was David Lyle, who became my boss and, and a mentor many years later. Uh, and he explained the reason the show didn't work was that Americans gamble on anything and everything. And in many other countries, the people are way more conservative. And once they reached a level of winning that was enough to comfort their lives and give them enough to, you know, live, live a, a, you know, a happy life for a year or two, they would stop. So hardly anybody went to the top of the ladder. Mm -hmm. They stopped in the middle and without the gambling, the show really doesn't have that many teeth because it just, it just isn't exciting unless they keep gambling. And in the U S man, they just gambled. They would gamble a million to go for 2 million. Uh, it was amazing. So I'm very proud of it. Um, it was, it was, I'm told, and I, I've become a believer of this, even though I don't know if it's actually true that, uh, Dick Clark agreed to share. I never asked him by the way, but he agreed to share his end credit card with me, uh, which was apparently the first time he had ever shared his card with any other producer. Um, because he was so grateful that I had come in and, and, uh, created this show in two days and, and was able to get it on the air. And he's the one who made me a showrunner. Uh, I was not a showrunner. I was a network executive prior to that. Uh, but because of him coming into Fox, nobody says no to Dick Clark. So uh, he said, Bob's the showrunner. And Mike Darnell said, okay, we will, we all need these people, don't we? To, to just push us on to the next stage. Yeah, Dick Clark was a was a wonderful, wonderful force in my life. Um, a mentor, later a friend, um, almost a dad to me. 
he was he was quite a lovely man who treated me just beautifully. In this segment, we're going to look at a word that we've used since our very first show, but we've not actually taken any time to explain what it is, and that is the word format. So, Justin, some people might have a rough idea that programs get sold around the world, like Millionaire, Deal or No Deal, Weakest Link. But what differentiates the program from the format? That's a great question. So most of what we're pitched is not a format. People think that just because a show's got a structure, that means that it's a format of some sort. But that isn't it. If we look at definitions, the format... Recognition and Protection Association, Frapper, some years ago came up with a definition to try and help companies to try and combat the growing problem of format piracy. This is how they describe it, and I think it's just worth reading out this rather weighty definition. In the making of a television program, an ordering of television elements, original and common, in such a way that a distinctive narrative progression is created. Okay, so can you unpack that a little bit for me? Well, um, narrative progression is simply what happens. So narrative is a story. Um, Progression is a journey uh, with a beginning, a middle and an end. So a format isn't just following a story, it's actually generating, it's actually making it happen. So what makes that narrative progression distinctive is the vision, the big idea, the, the twist that you've brought to the idea. And those things need to be distinct from other stories, other shows, other ways of telling that story. The elements, of course, are the things that actually you need to make your show. So the people, the location, the mechanics, the surprise, the outcome, the prize. And they can fall into, as they said, either original elements or common elements. So most elements are common in the sense that they happen in lots of different shows. You have eliminations that happen, you have rounds, you have judges and that, and so on and so on. What really matters, and of course you you always can have hopefully one or two new ideas, but what really matters is how you organise, what the recipe is that you put those common and original elements into. It's interesting when you're talking about narrative heft in these things. Um, mm. I think I heard um, Richard Osman talk about a game show and he's uh, when he said about when, when we're trying to come up with different ideas it's always tough to, to find new stories and I, and I went oh stories is an interesting way of, of putting a game show format and I thought well in a way could you say like all game shows quiz shows reality shows you know even to some extent like factual documentaries which are also formatted that they are essentially all ways of telling a story it's just that perhaps with the format it's a story that it has a, a full stop at the end where there is a, a, some kind of outcome whether it's um, a realization or a prize or whatever it mm. is well yeah i think you're right i mean format creation is essentially world building one of the reasons it's such a difficult genre, particularly in game shows, is because you've got a completely empty space. You've got a black box with nobody in it and no reason for anyone to do anything. And you've got to create that world. You've got to populate it. You've got to give them something to do. And you've got to motivate them to do it. Mm. And all of that creates a drama in which those people are driven to make a series of decisions, the outcome of which is exciting. But then you can sort of look at something like, say, a sport, and you go, well, is a sport a format? Yeah. 
It is essentially. I guess the difference is that another definition of a of a format is that it's something that travels, i.e., that it gets remade in different places, which I suppose sport does. But it's also something. It's a formula that other people want to buy. If nobody wants to buy it, then essentially it's not going to travel, and therefore it's not a format. It's just a program structure. Because I know your your business partner Michelle had this definition of a format as being a kind of a recipe. Yes, absolutely. It's a recipe. That's exactly what it is, and it's a recipe that's written down in such a way that somebody else who hasn't made the original dish can go away and remake it and bring some elements of their local culture and their local interest to it. Obviously, with game shows and factual documentaries, there's ways of expressing that format. But I think it's interesting to just touch on some of the other areas in which you could say things are formatable. Mm. So I know that some people have tried to sell sitcoms as a format because you've got a, a setup, a group of characters you've got scripts you've got set design and lighting music and all of those sort of things go towards making a bundle of stuff that you can sell as a format yeah well that's what we call scripted formats so game shows and reality shows are unscripted formats um, but there are a lot of scripted formats which are shows that are not just remade around the world but remade to a formula um, one of the ones that I like the best is Doc Martin, ITV medical comedy drama, which has been remade all over the world, um, following the scripts, following the characters. And you think, well, why Doc Martin? It seems so specific about, you know, Martin Clunes, you know, in a Cornish village, blah, 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 blah. But actually, if you think about it, the idea of a rude surgeon who has an accident, wakes up with a fear of blood hasn't got a job, has to go back to the little village that he grew up in as the local GP, and is an excellent doctor, but a terrible GP. And the village is small and rural and full of, you know, interesting, quirky characters. That actually can apply in every country in the world, and it has done. Hmm. And my favourite adaptation of it, and I have to confess, I forget which country it was, I think it was Poland, What they did was something even cleverer, I thought, which was they licensed Doc Martin, got the scripts, blah, blah, blah. And then they spun off the main character from one of their main hospital soaps. (laughs) So it was a surgeon in that soap. If you you imagine Jax in uh, Holby City having an accident, waking up with a fear of blood, and then six months later she's in Doc Martin, as it were. Mm was a really clever idea to sort of extend their own franchise uh, into that but yes scripted formats are again less talked about but they they've been going on since till death is due part was remade in the states and many 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 years ago mm. and step to and son yep which was a huge success as sanford and son in in the states as well there's also been instances where advertising campaigns have uh, crossed boundaries but that's sort of a much more of a niche thing i think that's fascinating, yeah. I mean, and also once you have a format, you know, things can extend into other platforms, into live events and all sorts of things. So, I mean, near to where I live, the Country File Festival is a, like 10 days. It's a, it's a huge festival. Grand Designs have a live uh, commercial event. Um, Downton Abbey travel around the world um, before COVID as this live experience where they built they took two of the sets with them 
And then we're now seeing with the Masked Singer this thing where they're extending into non-fungible tokens. Oh, my word. Called the Maskverse. <laughs> so the Maskverse is where collectors and uh, uh, cryptocurrency people can go and purchase NFTs uh, related to the Masked Singer. Um, so once you've got that first magic formula whether it's in television or, or where else but particularly in tv if you can get it right and it's really 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 hard to get it right then the opportunities for exploiting that format are huge well if you want to buy the non-fungible token for this episode of a tv show and tell then um, just just send ten thousand pounds in the brand envelope to the usual address <laughs> Now it's time to return to our exclusive chat with top exec producer Bob Bowden. So something else that you've been involved with uh, through Hasbro, I think, is this business of converting uh, box and board games into TV game shows, which is a which is an interesting process. I, I know that you were involved with the Game of Life and, and various other shows. Um, Scrabble Showdown was one of those shows where you had to take the game yeah. of Scrabble and turn it into a, into a TV experience. Um, yeah. What was that like doing that? Well, uh, when I went to Hasbro, um, it, the, the goal was to take as many of their board games as possible and turn them into either standalone game shows or to be elements in a show called Family Game Night, mm -hmm. which utilized about ultimately about a dozen Hasbro formats that were based on their IP from their, from their um, retail board games. So that's things like Guess Who and Bop It and Cranium and Connect Four and all of these shows, all of these games, yeah. Yeah, uh, we had Sorry Sliders, we had Yahtzee Bowling. Uh, the, the end game was Monopoly, Crazy Cash, a Boggle. I was uh, virtually every every game you could imagine were incorporated into family game night and the ones that weren't got standalone shows. So we did a show based on a board game called Picture Rica, which was a, <clears throat> a find it type of show where you had to look at a puzzle of, of images and pick out certain ones. Uh, we did a, a game based on the game of life, uh, which was a legacy format of um, Hasbro's and going back to Milton Bradley and then Scrabble, Turning Scrabble into a board game had already been done uh, in the 80s with, uh, with Chuck Woolery on NBC. And that was a, a fairly simple crossword type game. It wasn't exactly Scrabble, but it worked quite well. It was on for about six years. And um, it hadn't been exploited on TV since then. So the challenge for us was to, to make it contemporary we wanted to attract a young audience as best as possible. Uh, we, we hired Pat Finn to be the, uh, the showrunner, and he worked with us. And, and we also brought on Sandy Stewart as a consultant to it because uh, he and certainly his dad, Bob Stewart, had created numerous uh, game show formats over the years. Um, so they and we at Hasbro... Um, brainstormed a whole bunch of different games that were all focused on words, um, combining letters, making new words, finding words within words. Um, and we had, I think, about a half dozen different games at least uh, by the time we went on the air. Uh, we hired a wonderful young host named Justin Willman, 
and uh, it was a it was a really fun fun concept. Um, the the uh, the the grand prize was a, a really cool idea, uh, which was if you won the game, you and your family could go on a trip anywhere, anywhere you <laughs> wanted in the world. Uh, we called it Ticket to Anywhere. And uh, we knew where they were going to go before they came on the show. And it had to be a place you could actually get to. Uh, but... Uh, but that was a great gimmick. And so, you know, we would we would give out the grand prize and say, where do you want to go? And they'd say it. And then that's where you're going. If you just think about the principle of turning a, a game into a game show, uh, obviously a game is played by a group of people. People at home are watching other people play a game. So what would you say are the guiding principles you think that are, are essential to moving something from one genre to the other? Well, the, the basic concept of a successful game show has to have audience play along. It, it is not enough to watch other people playing a game. You as the audience have to play it also. Um, you know, shining examples of that are Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, Price is Right. I think the best of all time is Family Feud. Uh, you simply cannot watch Family Feud without yelling at your television set. So our goal in taking the board game experience, which is very much based on the dynamics of the people in the room, often people you know, uh, we couldn't take advantage of that on the television version because you don't know these people. So you can't relate to them other than what they're trying to do to win the game and you at home are also trying to do. And the best example of, of that is Wheel of Fortune, where there's actually two different games going on. The game that the contestants are playing, which is to earn as much money as possible for their bank, because that determined who won the show. But the players at home are playing a different game, which is to solve the puzzle as quickly as possible. So at home, since we're not earning real money, we want to get that puzzle before the contestants. And most times we do because they've built in the element of the spinning wheel, which delays the contestants from answering until they either run out of letters to call or they feel they have enough money or they're nervous they're going to hit bankrupt. But they go way further than when they actually know the puzzle in general. Whereas at home, you grab it as soon as you know it and you feel smart. You feel validated. So we tried to work that principle into the Scrabble showdown as best we could and give the contestants the ability to earn uh, advantages, prizes, money to, to keep them from jumping in quickly so that the home audience could solve it before they did. Uh, we were successful in some games and less successful in others. It's, 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 it's harder for the games we created uh, they they weren't as simplistic as the hangman game but i think we did a pretty decent job of of you know creating these mini games and the viewers at home play along so you were instrumental in uh, adapting the chase for american audiences and it was a very well received adaptation which earned you a daytime emmy nomination um you compared to the current um, production, you, your version stuck largely 
to some of the main beats of the UK version. Why, why did you choose to do that? ITV, which owns the format of The Chase worldwide, uh, had been pitching the show uh, for quite a while. And finally, they sold it to Mike Darnell uh, at Fox. They pitched me as the showrunner, and Mike was, was fine with that. And we went to England to do the pilot. We want to do the British version, but Americanize it to the extent necessary. So what I did was I analyzed the format. I watched the show quite a few times. Uh, I love the dynamic between Bradley Walsh and the Chasers. And uh, we decided to make a couple of changes. Uh, one was a practical change, which is the U.S. format length is shorter than the British format length. So I suggested that we go from four contestants to three. Uh, I wanted to give our host, uh, who for the pilot was Bradley, a chance to have a little more fun with the contestants and, and with the chasers. I wanted to put the word bank on the board because Americans uh, aren't as savvy as British viewers of game shows. And I didn't think it was intuitive for Americans to know when you reach the bottom of the board, you would get the money. I, I like that change. I, I wish the British version had that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just, because to me it was like, okay, you reached the bottom, you fell off the board and that means you won. So I wanted it to be a rah-rah moment instead of a floor moment. And in terms of the chasers, we we used uh, we used Mark Labette for one pilot, uh, who was wonderful, as you can imagine. And we brought over Brad Rutter, uh, Jeopardy champ of all time at the time, uh, to be the other chaser because I wanted to have an American and a Brit in the mix. We cast people in the U.S. and flew them over, great contestants. And uh, we did two pilots, one with Mark and one with Brad. And uh, Bradley Walsh was amazing, as, as he always is. Uh, so we were very happy with it. We brought it back to the U.S. Uh, we edited a superb pilot. We did teases and we... We hired Mike's favorite announcer to do the voiceover so he would hear his favorite voice. And he loved it. And then he left Fox. So you know what happens when executives leave networks. Everything that they had on the shelf is generally swept away by their replacement. The option for the show ended. And Game Show Network had been calling me uh, almost weekly saying, we want the chase, when can we have it? And I kept telling them, well, Fox still has it. They've renewed it. They want it still. We had, I think the initial option was six months, and then they renewed it for another month, and they renewed it for another month, and then Mike left, and it lapsed. And the next day, GSN picked it up. So they only wanted the beast. They only wanted Mark Labette. And uh, they uh, insisted on some other changes, uh, some of which uh, I, I think were helpful to the show, some of which I was not happy with. Um, but uh, 
It's their money. It's their time period. You have to do it their way. Uh, I was very unhappy that they lost the UK music package, which to this day I still love. Uh, and we had this nondescript music. It wasn't even music. It was it was just drum beats. It was bizarre. Um, but that's what they wanted. Um, the money uh, was going to be decidedly more than the daytime version, the, the, the tea time version of the British version, uh, but not as much as the primetime version, uh, the celebrity version. So we settled on $5,000 a question, which for Game Show Network was enormous. And what they loved about the show is that there could be huge numbers in the pot, but it wouldn't be given away very often because the beast would win more often than not. So they had never had jackpots of over $100,000 on any show. <laughs> but here we were, you know, $5,000 a question. They actually wanted $10,000 a question. And um, thanks to Michael Kelpie and, and uh, Martin Scott, who had come over from the UK to work with us on, on the US version, uh, they talked GSN out of it because GSN wanted enormous money from the cash builder. And when we said, well, let's say they get eight right, that's $80,000, then that means the high offer has got to be like 200000 And we knew that was too rich for their budgets. And they said, well, we're not going to make the high offer that much higher. Maybe <laughs> we would make it a hundred. And Michael just did not take well to that and explained to them in very Kelpian terms that th this show is about gambling. And the whole concept of the show is that the, the chaser is trying to lure the contestants into going for the high amount and then beating them. And if the high amount is only 10 or 20 percent higher than the middle amount, they're never going to gamble. And GSN said, that's OK. And he said, no, that's not OK. And it got into quite a heated debate, but he got his way. And I'm glad he did, because uh, had they done that, I don't think the show would have worked. Um, so we went back to 5000, which was still a monumental amount for them. But that's where the show lived. So uh, one of the shows that you're uh, working on now is funny. You should ask. And uh, so that's a, a new syndicated property, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes, it's 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 not brand new. Uh, we're actually starting season six pretty soon. Uh, it it it's a show that has six celebrities on a panel, two contestants. Uh, we ask the celebrities a question. They give a joke answer, and then they give a real answer. And the contestants have to decide whether they think their answer, the celebrity answer, was right or wrong. Very simple premise. And uh, it's just, it's all about laughs. It's all about jokes. It's about fun. Uh, it, it's a joy to work on this show. We laugh all day. I mean, when I come home from a day of five shows of taping, my stomach hurts so much. And not from the catered lunch, but from the, <laughs> uh, uh, from the, uh, the jokes. It's just a hysterical show. You have, you have great guests on it as well. It's just some name check some of the people you've had on it. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, we have a permanent chair for John Lovitz. Uh, we, we had um, Louis Anderson on almost all of our episodes, and unfortunately, he just passed away. 
Um, uh, we have the home team, Byron Allen, who owns the show and, and owns our company. Uh, he's on the panel. Uh, we have rotating um, uh, men and women uh, comedians, uh, everyone from uh, Jack A to Vivica A. Fox to Sherry Shepard. We've had Howie Mandel on several times on the show and uh, Bill Engvall and, and uh, a, a whole host of other great, great uh, talented people. Billy Gardell. It's just been a fantastic lineup of comedians. One thing that I find uh, as everything goes digital, it's really frustrating, is I, I don't really have copies of the shows that I work on anymore. And uh, I, I was interested to hear that you're sort of doing your bit to try and preserve game show uh, history. So do you want to explain how you're doing that? Last year, uh, my business partner and I, Howard Blumenthal, we uh, were lucky enough, uh, fortunate enough, to announce uh, a, a, a new venture for the Strong National Museum of Play, which is located in Rochester, New York, and it's called the National Archives of Game Show History. And this has always been a dream of mine um, to have a place to preserve game show history, not just the videos of the shows, but the actual set pieces, the props, uh, the, the, the iconic pieces that, that make these shows memorable, uh, which many of which I've collected over the years and just put into my home office and now there's a place for it all to go eventually um, to be preserved for, for eternity. And uh, uh, this is a legacy project for me. And I'm just so fortunate to have a home for all this stuff and um, to allow you know, future generations to, to enjoy it like I have. Uh, we're also doing interviews with uh, numerous uh, pioneers of the game show world. Uh, who have really built the genre and, and kept it going. And that is, that is just such a treat and a half for me because I get to spend time with my idols, my mentors. Um, they get their moment in the sun, many of whom have not had one for a while. And the museum is getting just the most amazing uh, insights from the people who built this, this business. Fantastic, and uh, we may encounter one of those pieces of game show history in the in our show and tell section. Um, but for now, Bob Bowden, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It was a joy. Now there aren't too many seven-syllable words banded around in the TV world, but there is one that's uh, caught on in recent decades: Galapagosization. Its roots lay in the accidental discovery of the Galapagos Islands by a Dominican friar in the year 1535. But Justin, what has this word got to do with the world of television? Well, it began in Japan as a term uh, for the basically the, like the isolated development of a globally available product. Um, so it's basically talking about when something grows up in relative isolation from the rest of the world because it's very, very focused on the local market. It was originally applied to Japanese mobile phones because they evolved in Japan whilst they were evolving elsewhere. In fact, Japanese mobile phones were very, very sophisticated. The trouble was they just didn't work anywhere else. All the features only worked in Japan. 
Mm. And similarly with their ATMs, the ATMs only took cards from local banks. It's a bit like the French uh, Minitel system, if you remember that, which was a <laughs> video online service that predated you know, the, the growth of the internet hugely. There were so many things that the French could do with Minitel, and it was very, very tied into French business. But the result was that France was actually very then very slow to adopt the, uh, the World Wide Web and the internet. Going back to Japan, if you looked at their television, a lot of Japanese shows at the time, we're talking about the late 90s, early 2000s, with these long, sprawling variety shows mm. with a lot of 10, 15-minute items in them, which were great but didn't fit into the television landscape of anywhere else in the world. You know, one of the few exceptions to that was Hole in the Wall, if you remember the show where contestants had to fit through a differently shaped holes in the wall coming towards them. But that was originally a 10, 15 minute segment in a very long variety show. Mm. And it took a lot of development to develop that into a half hour show that would fit in fit for Western audiences. Because there was a lot of Japanese shows that were successful there. But yes, they either didn't travel at all or they did travel in a very different format and perhaps decades later. Yeah. So there was Ultra Quiz uh, where you travelled around the world and the more questions you got right, the further around the world you went. And then there was Endurance, the sort of the hmm. the torture porn game show. Of which there were only ever 12 episodes, by the way. Was it really? Yeah. Wow. So that was that was made famous because it, clips of it were shown on the Clive James show. Mm. And then there's a show that they had called Masquerade, where people would dress up in fancy dress costumes and sort of turn their family into a snooker table or something like that. And I don't think that particularly ever travelled, even though it was it was a brilliant visual gag. Well, one of the reasons these things didn't travel as formats is that almost entirely. All the contestants on these shows were actors. Really? Yeah, they were comedy actors, comedy troops, uh, who were very familiar to the home audience. Um, and that's why they reacted so heavily, and that's why they were happy to have you know scorpions put down their pants and all of that stuff. They were all comedy actors, as they were in Hood on the Wall. When you, you Because know, Japanese society was completely different to that. It was very reserved, very polite. There's no way that regular Japanese members of the public would take part in these things. But then when you come to translate that, when you when you license that 15, 10, 15 minutes or whatever as a format and you've got to build it out, you've also got to try and work out how to do it with, with regular people, with members of the public. Because mm. our celebrities won't do that stuff. And though, of course, now we know they would. But at the time, we didn't know they would. So that was another reason why that was very, very specific. And of course, we're missing huge amounts of the show because the Japanese audiences not only know those actors, but they know these troops and they know what roles each of the characters play in that troupe. You know, they know which is the sad one, which is the funny one, which is the shy one. And they have very oh, come with a whole range of stuff that we're, we're, we're just not seeing. I uh, had a trawl through the sort of history of game shows very quickly to see sort of what formats were around when in, in each sort of kind of decade so in the sort of start of major sort of commercial television in the 50s most of the formats that we had going around were uh, i mean i'm talking mainly about uk tv but i think right. this is also largely reflective of, of 
formats elsewhere. So in the 50s, it was mainly American shows that travelled. So things like Dotto, 21, Criss Cross Quiz, or Tic-Tac-Toe as they called it, the $64,000 question and Concentration. Um, and then that still went on into the 60s with things like University Challenge. It wasn't really until the 70s that that that, that we sold something to the States. And do you know what the first format that we sold to the States was? Um, I would guess it. No, I don't know, actually. It was uh, the Krypton Factor, believe it or not. They they did it fairly differently, but it, by and large it was faithful to our version. Mm. And then in the 70s, we started to sniff around other parts of Europe for formats, so things like the Generation Game, uh, which was, I think, based on a Dutch show called In van der Acht, or something like that. And then Spain, there was um, 321, we imported. It was a much more mixed picture in the 80s, again, like the revival of big shows from the States, like The Price is Right, Wheel of Fortune. But we were also looking to see the beginnings of the much more bigger and bolder European shows. So some of the very large studio shows from Germany influenced things like Crystal Maze. And then France, of course, provided us with things like Treasure Hunt. And Des Lettres and Des Chiffres as well, Countdown. Still going, yes, indeed. Mm. Mid-80s onwards, we have things like the Reg Grundy Network from Australia providing a lot of uh, quiz show formats uh, that were very much intended to be formats that were sold around the world in bulk. Then I suppose we're sort of looking more towards the reality and talent era, although the UK had a part to play in that. I mean, as we learned from Simon Lithgow, uh, actually that came from... It was New Zealand first, wasn't it? Then Australia, then right. to the UK. And then so we, we helped that on its way, um, but we were not the originators of that. And then, of course, we have Millie the End, Weakest Link. Um, and then, so what What have been the sort of the hotspots since that era? Well, for a, quite a long time after that, it was Holland. I mean, the, the UK has continued to be the chief exporter of formats for a very long time we more more british formats travel away than from from this country than than from any other country but uh, holland has always been up there with us uh, with obviously shows like big brother and so on but uh, a lot of a lot of big shows israel um, then came in in the sort of 2010s mm. um, suddenly the world's attention turned to israel because israel have a very an audience that's very keen on tv have uh, a lot of startup, a lot of very creative people, and also a lack of studios meant that um, a lot of shows were turned around very quickly. And then, of course, we had South Korea in the, the last sort of five years or so. Yes, absolutely. Though, again, it's interesting with uh, South Korea that a lot of the shows tend to get a one Western iteration somewhere where the show is westernized first before it really breaks in the west if we look at mars singer it traveled to indonesia i think it was but certainly it had a number of a number of iterations before it settled down into the the structure and the look that it has now and before it came here and of course dragon's den looking at looking game taking us back to back to um japan dragon's den was originally uh tigers of money it was a very simple beautifully made but very simple very cheap show with essentially the same premise which was picked up by a company called small world ift who then brought it to the bbc and that was that was the point at which it was developed into the show that we see today 
And it's largely that show that then travelled around the world. So there you are. I hope you've enjoyed that trip around the world of formats. And finally, Bob Bowden has a special piece of game show memorabilia to show us in our show and tell segment. And we're joined again by Bob Bowden. So, Bob, what have you brought to show and tell us? Well, uh, as as you gentlemen know, and many people know, I am a collector of vintage game show uh, props and set pieces and memorabilia. And one of the things I'm proudest of is this here. It is an original whammy from the CBS Pressure Lux series. Uh, there were uh, four whammies on every contestant's podium. And if you hit four whammies, you were out of the game. But if you hit any whammy at any time, you lost all your money. And the, the whammy was an animated character uh, that would crawl across the screen in many different themes uh, and became the, the sort of uh, identification of Pressure Luck as a a cool, different kind of look and feel for the show. So this is one of the original whammies. And here I've got two of the slides. Everything on the board at that time was slide projectors projected onto this board of 18 squares. And the slide projectors had uh, five different slides in in each square. And uh, here are two of them. This was a whammy slide, one of many. And this is the most iconic one, Big Box which uh, became the uh, mating call for all contestants who wanted to to avoid a whammy and get the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's fake or format time. It's back to me to provide two options. One of these is a real show and the other one isn't. All right, Justin, I have for you this one so uh, you may remember that there was a, a uk presenter and actress called katie boyle and there was also a carry-on actor called lance percival and in 1968 there was a medical quiz called lance that boyle which was made for thames television for three episodes so that's your first option or your second option is give us a bob which was a failed attempt to do candid camera in the UK from 1960. Uh, Bob Monkhouse would pretend to get himself into a humorous situation, such as having his foot stuck in a bin, and anybody who came to his rescue would win a shilling note, or what we would call a bob in pre-decimal days, uh, which Bob would sign himself. So there you are. You've got Lance That Boyle or Give Us a Bob. Wow. Okay. So Lance Percival and Katie Boyle. I seem to remember that around about that time, comedy hospital dramas were quite a big thing. So I can sort of imagine that that kind of bedpan humour might be something that we saw on TV. However, it does feel like a bit of a stretch. Give us a Bob. Bob Monkhouse was a comedy actor before he was a television presenter. I could sort of imagine him as a forebearer to Jeremy Beadle. And of course, Candid Canberra will be around about that time as well, which was hugely successful. So I'm going to plump for Give Us a Bob. Well, I can tell you that the real answer is Lance That Boyle. No. Wow. Yeah. 
<clears throat> I have to say thank you to Chris Dixon who forwarded this to me because when I when I saw it I just went that's definitely a, a fake or a format question yeah <clears throat> there genuinely was a medical quiz for Thames Television called the Lansdowne Boyle it's what an awful awful pun yeah wow actually I've just been secretly googling in the background and I feel a bit awful because actually the person that did do the UK version of Candid Camera was Bob Monkhouse <laughs> it turns <laughs> out it was 1960 of all the years I could have picked well I um, think that that just shows that we can both you know we both cast Bob in that role while we were talking and that just shows that we know what we're talking about it's fine it's good there we are <laughs> anyway there you go if you have any comments or questions about the show, our Twitter account is, as always, at TV Show Podcast, or you can email us on contact at tvshowandtell.com. That's it for this time, but until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggy. And this has been TV Show and Tell. <laughs> <laughs>